0: We started a series of messages, uh, a short series. It will consist of about five or six messages regarding the Lord's Supper. We started last week by talking about uh, uh, the nature of an independent, unaffiliated Baptist church. And uh, before we get into the ordinance of the Lord's Supper itself, it's important that we understand what a church is because there's so much confusion in the world today. There are those that, you know, think, well, uh, the very moment you get saved, all of a sudden you become a part of what they call the universal invisible church. And in reality, there is no such thing. I often wonder, you know, those that believe in the universal invisible church, why don't they call their universal invisible pastor whenever it comes time to, you know, to marry and to bury the family? Uh, so there's no such thing. There's a difference between the family of God. The family of God's made up of all of those people that are saved, whether they're on earth or in heaven. If you're saved, you're a part of God's family. Being a member of the church isn't going to get you into God's family. It's not going to get you into heaven. And then there's the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God has to do with God's rule over His people at any given time here upon this earth. But when we talk about the Lord's church, the church is an assembly... And that's the key word right there. It comes from the Greek word ekklesia, which means a called-out assembly. It is an assembly of born-again, baptized believers that have united together in the common faith and fellowship of the gospel for the purpose of glorifying God through obedience to His Word. I mean, I don't know how to sum it up any more than that and yet be broad enough in the definition to include those things that are of major importance. So that's what a church is. Now, starting tonight, we're going to talk about the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. And uh, there will be, like I say, probably four other messages, uh, because quite obviously uh, one message trying to cover all of the different aspects of it You know, it would take us four or five hours to go through that. And I don't know anybody that wants to stay here that long tonight, Uh, especially uh, Kristen. She doesn't want to stay that long because Jason is in Beaumont, left Beaumont already from Savannah, on his way here. And uh, so they'll get to be together tonight, and so I'm sure she doesn't. You know, he gets there and says, "Well, you know, Jason, we're we're going to stay till midnight because your dad's all wound up and he won't quit." And. <laughs> So, we're going to spread this out in several different messages. Tonight, we're going to talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper. The institution of the Lord's Supper. And we'll talk later on about the purpose of the Lord's Supper, the elements of the Lord's Supper, and so on and so forth, and all of those details that you might be wondering about already. But regarding the institution of the Lord's Supper, there are five things tonight that I want to point out what it is when it was instituted, where it was instituted, who was present when the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper, and why it was instituted. So let's start with the what it is. Well, as you know, if you've ever read the Old Testament especially, symbolism plays a major part in God transmitting truth from one generation to the other. And as you go back and you look at the old Levitical priesthood, for example, and all of the Old Testament sacrifices, the feast days and so forth, all of those pictured various aspects of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. I said just the other day, talking about the tabernacle, and how that every article of the tabernacle, whether it was the furniture, the tent itself, or whatever it was, every article was dictated, as it were, by the Lord, Every article represented something pertaining to the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Nothing was left to chance. And that's why God told Moses, You see that you build all things according to the pattern that I gave you in the mount. Now, we come to the New Testament and the Lord's church, uh, and we find two ordinances. One, of course, is baptism, and the other is the Lord's Supper. The purpose in both instances has to do with providing instruction, because on our own, we are ignorant. Whether you want to think of it that way or not, we are. Jeremiah said, the way of man is not in himself, it's not in man that walketh to direct his steps. We need guidance from God, and especially in regards to to this matter of the Lord's Supper and the person and work of Christ. So we need these instructions. We're also not just ignorant, but we are very forgetful. And we need to be reminded. And oftentimes we are apathetic regarding things that are holy, and we need inspiration. That's why the ordinances are so important. They provide instruction, a reminder, and inspiration. Now, the word ordinances is one of those churchy words, you know, that we often use and we never explain. And I I, I always think about what old Charles Spurgeon said many, many years ago, And uh, it's a phrase that I hung on to, and especially being a preacher, that I never forgot. And he said, it's not enough to be so plain that you can be understood. We must speak so that we cannot be misunderstood. And how true that is, it's important to not just say something in a manner that people can understand it, but we need to phrase it in a way that they cannot misunderstand what we mean. The word ordinances has to do with that which is ordered or something that has been commanded. A good friend of mine with the name of Davis Huckabee wrote a book uh, many. It's been many years ago now. On the ordinances of the church. In fact, he has a whole series. I don't have any idea where you might ever find these books or anything, but they're about as good as it gets whenever it comes to the subject of the church. And uh, writing in regards to the ordinances, I'm going to read just a little uh, a little paragraph that he wrote. He said, "In Christian usage, it that is ordinance." refers to a divinely instituted rite which conveys truth through symbolism. And then it goes on to say, "...in studying the New Testament account of the church, we find, besides moral duties, certain acts commanded by its founder, significant of certain truths enjoined on the members of the church. And such acts are called ordinances." An ordinance is an outward institution appointed by Christ by positive precept to be observed by all of His people to the end of the age, commemorating an essential gospel fact and declaring an essential gospel truth. Of these there are two, baptism and the communion, uh, the initiation and the consummation of the Christian life. The ordinances are the gospel in symbol. They commemorate, declare, and typically embody the whole Christian system. They are true symbols of Christianity, divinely appointed, and all sufficient. Now I know that's, that's, that's a wagon load, and you're not going to remember all of that, of course, but maybe there's some little nuggets that will stand out that'll help you to be mindful of what an ordinance is. Now, when we think about, and you'll notice he uses the phrase there, positive institutions and uh, in, 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 in regards to the ordinances, these are positive institutions that the Lord has established. Now, what we need to realize is that this is different from our moral duties for example, whenever we think about our moral duties, these are things that are intrinsically holy. In other words, these are things that are commanded because they are absolutely right. Are you with me? You, you see where I'm going? In other words, God says, thou shalt not do this, and thou shalt not do that, or thou shalt do this. In, in other words, a matter of right and wrong. Now, when we come to the ordinances, we find that these are those things that have been prescribed by the Lord... That have nothing to do with the moral law whatsoever, but rather they are, they are the things that God has commanded or ordained specifically for a certain people. And so, whereas, for example, another illustration of the difference is that in the moral law, that's something that, uh, uh, that, that is forever. That's something year after year doesn't make any difference. It's binding upon all mortal beings. Uh, whereas when we come to the ordinances, everybody's not commanded to observe the Lord's Supper, for example. And, in in fact, everybody's not qualified to observe the Lord's Supper. And so the, the, the ordinances has to do with particular People, not everybody in general. Thou shalt not kill. That applies to everybody. The Lord's supper applies only to those that that have been prescribed by the Word of God. And so, while we refer to it as a commandment, understand that it's not a commandment in the sense that it is a moral obligation. Now, over the over the years, a, a terrible thing happened in that. Many began to refer to the ordinances as sacraments. Now, in and of itself, in fact, I can go back in, uh, to the old timey Baptist, and I can find even to this day, as I'm reading uh, certain messages from preachers, let's say 200 years ago, Baptist preachers, and uh, they'll they'll make a reference to the sacraments. And I know what they mean, and it doesn't do any injustice to the Word of God if you use that word sacrament in the strict meaning of the Word. But what has happened is, is that the word sacrament has been hijacked, you might say, by religion, and it's taken on the meaning of something that we do in order to secure salvation. Salvation. And of course you got all of the different religious denominations and what have you and each, each one have their own different idea as to, as to, uh, the number of sacraments. For example, the Catholics say there are seven different sacraments and then you've got the some of the Protestants, they you know, they've got fewer, but uh, but the Catholics, I suppose, have the most sacraments, and you've got to keep all of the seven sacraments in order to in order to go to heaven. And they say the sacraments impart saving grace. That's that's what they say. We believe what the Bible teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, where it says, For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves? It's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. And so salvation then is a gift from God. It's based upon our faith in God. In other words, it's based upon what God does for us, not what we do for God. So neither baptism nor the Lord's Supper has any saving power whatsoever but both are pictures of the salvation that God provides. So there are not seven, there are only two. Now, that being said, I think it, it would be wise tonight to clarify a certain issue because even among Baptists and even to this very day, there are those that try to put a third ordinance in there. And that ordinance, of course, is the ordinance of foot washing, or they say that it is an ordinance. And the confusion arises out of this statement, and you're familiar with it in John chapter number 13, where the Lord said, If I then, if I then your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done, unto you. And so they say, well, right there it is, clear as day that we have a command to wash one another's feet. But that command to wash one another's feet does not make that an ordinance any more than any of the other commands. Have you have you ever noticed, and especially in the writings of Paul, and, and I know you have all of the one another's there You know how we are to love one another, pray for one another, forgive one another, be ye kind one to another. And uh, that's the way a church ought to operate, Uh, the things that we do one toward another. Well, if you're going to take this and make an ordinance out of foot washing, for example, then you've got to make ordinances out of all of those different things. So maybe you're thinking, okay, what's what's the difference? Well, the difference is very clear that, remember, I said a few minutes ago that the ordinances have to do with symbolism, and specifically it has to do with symbolism regarding the person and work of Christ. In other words, the Lord's Supper and baptism in some way symbolizes the salvation that Jesus Christ provides, Foot washing does not present any such picture is that there's no picture of salvation in that 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 is a picture of humility and service one to another has nothing to do with salvation so uh so if you meet up with some of your uh, maybe Baptist friends that say well we believe in foot washing well you know that's well and good i mean wash one another's feet i mean if they need it that's fine but don't call it a church ordinance you see All right, now the second thing tonight that we wanna we wanna discuss and that is when was the Lord's Supper instituted. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number twenty six, and here in Matthew twenty six is the first reference to the Lord's Supper. Matthew twenty six and uh let me see, about verse number where am I at? Verse seventeen. And it says, Now the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus, saying unto him, Where wilt thou that we prepare for thee to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into the city to such a man, and say uh, unto him, The Master saith, My time is at hand, I will keep the Passover at thy house with with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had appointed them, and they made ready the Passover. Now, when the even was come, he sat down with the twelve, and as they, as they did eat, he said, Verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And they were exceeding sorrowful, and began every one of them to say unto him, Lord, is it I? And he answered, And said, He that dippeth his hand with me in the dish, the same shall betray me. The Son of Man goeth as written of him, but woe unto that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. If it had had been good for that man, if he had not been born. And then Judas, which betrayed him, answered and said, Master, is it I? He said unto him, Thou hast said, and as they were eating... Jesus took bread and blessed it and break it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many, for the remission of sins. But I say unto you, I will not drink henceforth of this Fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out into the Mount of Olives. Now, this, as I said, is the first reference to the Lord's Supper here in the New Testament. It's the evening. It's the evening before Jesus was crucified, and and he meets with with the with the disciples, and at that meeting. Uh, he institutes the Lord's Supper, and, and notice as he did so often, he uses some uh, material something or another in order to illustrate spiritual truth. In this case, he used the bread and the fruit of the vine. It's no accident that this is taking place during uh, the, the 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 Passover. In First Corinthians chapter five and verse number seven. It tells us there that Christ is our Passover. If you go back to the Old Testament there in the book of Exodus, you find that the Passover was instituted to commemorate the deliverance of Israel from Egyptian bondage. And you know the story well, how that God was going to, uh, send the death angel and unless they took of the blood and sprinkled the blood on the doorpost, why, uh, the firstborn in every home would die. So as a result of that event the Lord instituted even way back then that that Old Testament ordinance requiring the Jews to observe the Passover. The Passover, of course, was a picture of what? It was a picture of the salvation. It's looking forward to the cross. We're looking backward to the cross, you see. But the picture is the same. And it's on that evening, which is the evening before the Lord was crucified, that He establishes the Lord's Supper to commemorate to commemorate His death, burial, and resurrection. A lot of people, you know, get, you know, perturbed or whatever because we don't always observe the Lord's Supper on the Lord's day. Well, there's certainly not anything wrong with observing the Lord's Supper on the Lord's day. In fact, we know that the early church did that, but I think not only on the Lord's day, they did it several different days, but it, since it was established not on the Lord's day, and by the way, and I don't want to get, I don't want to get you off track or anything, but I just want to remind you, and I think everybody understands what we believe and what I, I preach and the fact that uh, there's nothing good about Good Friday that Christ was not crucified on Friday to start with. He was crucified on a Wednesday. He was 72 hours in the grave. And then he tells us himself, he's in the grave what? Three days and three nights. And so I don't care how you try to cut it. So, you know, that puts uh, the Lord, establishment of the Lord's Supper then way back here, not, not on Sunday. But that's when it was instituted. Where was it instituted? Well, obviously, from what we just read, it was there in an upper room. That upper room is something that, uh, according to the Greek experts, would, would, would be called a guest chamber. In other words, it was a room that had been furnished in a room that had been prepared for guests. And you remember the Lord sent the disciples and told this man, you know, that they needed to borrow the room, which they did. Uh, some have suggested that this is the exact same house that's mentioned over in the, in the book of Acts that belong to the parents of John Mark. Well, maybe it is, maybe it's not. You know, I don't I don't care about that. More important than being in the upper room is the fact that it was in Jerusalem. And remember, our Lord had traveled from Bethany. That's about two miles away. He's traveled from Bethany to Jerusalem. And it was there in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover that He institutes the Lord's Supper. So think about this. That after all of those long years had passed by, and all, and, and, and when I say all of the long years, I'm talking about going all the way back even when Abraham offered up his son Isaac, and now back there in the s- same place, at that same time, at the observance of the Passover, as all of the Jews, as they are bringing their lambs in as sacrifices, God brings the Lamb of God into the city. And there He is presenting Him to be our sacrifice. Now, the next question has to do with who was present. And again, there's a bit of controversy about that. Obviously, it speaks about the disciples and it refers to them as the twelve. However, you've got to understand that sometimes the disciples were were referred to as the twelve, uh, even whenever Judas Iscariot had already betrayed the Lord, and so referring to them as a group, the twelve, it may or may not have reference to Judas. And this is the bone of contention is... Uh, was Judas there or not? Well, we just read, and that's why I took the time to read all of those verses. We just read that Judas was indeed there when they are observing the Passover, and he is there up until the point when the Lord is saying, one of you is going to betray me, and they all said, is it I? And finally, Judas said, "It is it I? And Jesus said, thou sayest, you know. And the Bible tells us that 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 he went out. Now, when he went out is uh, again open for debate. And, and I'm bringing all of this up because it has to do with with. Arguments going on among Baptists about little petty things that really doesn't make any difference whatsoever. And if we're not careful, we'll get distracted from the importance of the Lord's Supper, worrying about whether Judas Iscariot was there all of the time or not. Did he leave before the Lord's Supper was actually instituted, or was he there throughout the Lord's Supper? You know, uh, you know. A more important question is: Are you here? i mean mentally you know and spiritually i i mean are we really with it now here's the most important thing about this part we're talking about who was present and obviously, obviously, it was limited to His disciples. In other words, it, it was, it was not open to everyone. In other words, it's not that, well, I'm going to establish the Lord's Supper and so bring all of your friends and your relatives and, and bring everybody. We want to have a big crowd and this is a great way to get their attention and it's an important thing that we're doing. No, it was restricted it was restricted to them as believers. So that's why we don't observe open communion and just say anybody and everybody can partake of it. We do not practice what some people call close communion. That is where you've got to be a believer in order to partake of the Lord's table. We believe in closed communion. That is that the the order, and we'll talk about more about this later on, We believe in closed communion because the ordinance was given to the church. Now, here's what you need to remember. Whenever the Lord gathered with those disciples, and although all of the other people are excluded, remember, among all of those people are a lot of believers. His mother... And all of these other believers, I mean people that truly loved him, people that loved God, people that served God. So you've got all of these believers and they are excluded. So why would that be? Why would it be limited to just those disciples that made up the first church? Well, that's the key. They made up the first church. According to 1 Corinthians chapter number 12 and verse number 28, it tells us, and He set some first in the church, first apostles. In other words, the first church was established by Christ during His earthly ministry, and the material that He used were those that He chose, those twelve. They made up the first church. And so, when we talk about the Lord's Supper, understand it is a church ordinance, and just as just as baptism is. And, and, and you know, I know there are some folks that make a big deal out of it. Well, all of God's children ought to be able to observe the Lord's table. And so, then you have people like Pat Boone and some other celebrities that you know that. Uh, well, I don't even know how to describe the mess of some of it, but. I remember several years ago, you know, he started doing evangelistic meetings. He should have stuck to singing and, and I, but in any way, and I don't mean to belittle the effort that he made, but they were baptizing his converts in the swimming pool at Hard Johnson's motel. Now, you can be scripturally baptized in a swimming pool. And you can be scripturally baptized in a swimming pool at a hired Johnson's Motel. You can be scripturally baptized out here in Lake Houston. You know, that, that part has nothing to do with it. But you cannot be scripturally baptized without the authority of a true church. That's where the authority is, and that's what they were neglected. Now, I bring that up because it's usually these same people that say, you know, it really doesn't make any difference what elements we use. And so some of them have been, been known to use Coca-Cola and potato chips. And, and, and that, that's what they use as the elements for the Lord's Supper. Well, let me go back to what God told Moses. See, thou make all things according to the pattern that I showed you in the mount. In other words, everything that we do ought to be done according to the pattern that was established by the Lord Jesus Himself. Well, that leaves us with one other thought tonight, and this is just to kind of get us started in the direction, and we'll narrow it down and get more specific each time. But, and especially on this point, and that is why was it instituted? Uh, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11, and we're just going to be summing things up basically here tonight, and we'll go into more detail in this regards. But here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, in verse number, let me see, let's start in verse 23 for this purpose. And he says, the Apostle Paul, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also he took the cup, Uh, When he had supped, saying, The cup is the New Testament of my blood, this do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. Now, Jesus made it very clear that it was to be observed what? And here's the key, in remembrance of me. In other words, this is a memorial to remind us of the great sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. That being the case, we need to learn all we can about it, and we need to observe it as carefully as we can. And and if you don't believe that, you just read right on down uh, through the rest of this chapter, for example, where he tells us to uh, let a man examine himself in verse 28 and in verse 29. He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. And so... Again, as I said last week, remember, and some people wonder, well, you know, I I just don't understand. Why don't we just have the Lord's Supper on a regular basis every week or every two weeks or monthly or whatever it is? Well, I'm not saying the church can't scripturally observe the Lord's Supper every week, but I'll tell you what, I've seen very few that I believe that could do it without it becoming a, a ritualistic and old hat and people going through the motions and doing it Without really, really getting the message of what it's all about. Another thing has to do it, and people wonder. Well, you know, last time we we it was only a month since we observed the Lord's Supper, and now it's been a year. Why did we wait so long to observe the Lord's Supper? Well, you know, it just might be that as the pastor, and there's, believe me, as a pastor, there's a lot of things that I know that I don't want to know. Because I don't go around on witch hunts, I don't try to play church cop. I'm not looking for the faults and failures of people. I, I, you know, I know way more than what I want to know. And there are times that I know in my heart that that it's just not a good time to be observing the Lord's supper. Because as I said, I believe this is a matter of life and death. I, God's not playing games, folks. And whenever he warns us, and he says, He that eateth and drinketh unworthily, eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, we very well could could shorten our lives or lose our health or whatever as a result of not having the right attitude concerning the Lord's table. So, so it, it's important that we take the time uh, to study and to give out the facts. And, you know, if I do that, then my hands are clean in that regard. Now, if somebody's not here and somebody say, well, you know, I know you're teaching all of these lessons, but it doesn't do any good if they're not here. Well, at least they had the opportunity. You see, if, if, if I don't present the truth, then I'm responsible for that. I've got to answer to God for the fact that I failed to provide them that, that teaching and that training, that information. But if I do that, at least I can say, my hands are clean. In that regard, so I, I hope you'll be in prayer with me that as we go through these lessons that, that it'll help each and every one of us to be reminded of the tremendous sacrifice that Jesus Christ made and how important it is that we, that we commemorate that in a godly way, in a manner that's pleasing in God's sight that results in Him being glorified because Basically, that's what it's all about. It's what's that little chorus? It's all about you, Jesus. That's what the Lord's Supper is. It's all about Him, and uh, He's all that matters. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and. Uh,